it is this group I've come to talk to, in particular the three women who set up Voices for Freedom. You guys started it, yeah? The three of you. Three mums. Three mums. That's Newsroom's Melanie Reid speaking to the founders of the anti-vax group Voices for Freedom, Alia Bland, Claire Deeks and Libby Johnson. The video feature was part of a wave of press Voices for Freedom and its allies have attracted in recent months. Nurses for Freedom, a group founded by Voices for Freedom local coordinator Deborah Cunliffe, featured recently on Three's The Project, where Cunliffe had this to say. And healthcare clearly matters to the people of New Zealand. Our nurses want to help. That altruistic posture jars a little with calls in the Nurses for Freedom group on the messaging service Telegram for Nuremberg 2.0 to be carried out on public figures who have backed vaccination and COVID health measures. At the end of that interview, presenter Mark Richardson pointed out that the healthcare workers in question could get their jobs back with just one simple step. Get the jab and go back. I don't care what your rationale is behind. Your country's saying we need you. So go and do something. It was like me fielding under the helmet. I didn't want to do it, but I did it for the good of the country. Right. Thanks. Other coverage has been more sympathetic to the anti-mandate cause. A story by Evan Harding and Stuff's Southland Times cast an uncritical eye over Nurses for Freedom's claim to represent 700 nurses just waiting to return to work. According to figures from the Ministry of Health, only around 500 nurses have been suspended for failing to meet COVID vaccine requirements. Stuff's article has since been removed, replaced by a message saying it failed to meet the company's editorial standards, and another article by Harding on vaccinations has received the same treatment. Stuff wasn't the only news organisation to pull a story after giving an uncritical platform to an anti-vaxxer. Last month, the Herald carried an article by the Northern Advocate about Brad Flutie, who was protesting the closure of the Marsden Point refinery. The story didn't mention that Flutie is an anti-vaxxer who called for Parliament protesters to shift their focus to Marsden Point as a way of retaining momentum after their occupation was broken up, nor that he has repeatedly called to overthrow the government and face charges for refusing to comply with COVID restrictions and wear a mask while shopping in January. After receiving criticism, the Herald took the article down and later replaced it with a rewritten version headlined Marsden Point Oil Refinery Protest Passes 100-Day Milestone in Northland Dash Take Two. While some organisations seem to have elevated these figures either by accident or in contravention of their own editorial standards, broadcaster Sean Plunkett's platform, The Platform, has platformed a succession of anti-vaxxers and extremists on purpose. Yesterday, presenter Michael Laws talked to Counterspin Media host Calvin Alp, who once told ACT leader David Seymour he was lucky protesters at the Parliament occupation hadn't strung him up from the nearest lamppost. An extrajudicial execution seems like the most extreme possible form of deplatforming, but an association with intolerance doesn't appear to be a deal-breaker for the platform, which has a tagline, Open, Tolerant, Free. The station has also aired long interviews with leaders of groups like Voices for Freedom and NZ Doctors Speak Out with Science in recent months, some of them not exactly unbiased. This is the platform host Rodney Hyde putting his cards on the table before an interview with Alia Bland. And I am a very, very, very proud member of Voices for Freedom. So this is my disclosure. I'm not actually having someone along that um, I'm neutral about. I am a fan of Voices for Freedom. I have met Alia and uh, her colleagues. I have never been as impressed by a group of women. After his interview with the well-known Facebook anti-vaxxer Chantal Baker, Plunkett was so moved that he even offered her a job. Do you want a weekly show on the platform? 
<laughs> well, possibly. Let's have a conversation about Let's it. Let's have a conversation about that. I would be happy to have you on board on the strength of, I think, the open conversation we have had today. Now, the reason Plunkett was making that offer and even interviewing Baker in the first place is because she had just featured in a documentary which painted her and other leading anti-vax figures in a less than flattering light. Fire and Fury by Stuff Circuit came out on Sunday and features clips like this taken from conspiracy and anti-vax groups on platforms like Telegram. Gotta love that sound of execution. It's gonna happen. Media in this country need burning. They really seriously need burning. This is the language of people who say we're all victims and perpetrators of a deep state propaganda machine. But actually, could it be they are the true propagandists? The doco shows a darker side to Voices for Freedom. Far from being just, in the words of that newsroom video, the project of three mums, Fire and Fury portrays a group which puts up an approachable, folksy front to draw people into a more radical and potentially violent agenda. If a Voices for Freedom link to fascism seems unlikely, it's not to fascists. Stuff Circuit has seen transcripts of messages between former National Front leader Kyle Chapman and others about potential political leadership. They identified the dark-haired lady from Voices for Freedom as a prospective leader. I asked the documentary's host, Paula Penfold, whether these fringe figures have had an easy ride from some parts of the media and why she decided to shine a light on what goes on in the shadier corners of the internet. Watching from Auckland the events play out during the Wellington protest, and you know the daily news media was doing an excellent job of it, but we started to see conversation in social media about uh, the idea of the term of making the country ungovernable. It was the use of that word that made us sit up and take notice about what uh, was meant by that and whether as a long-form video investigative unit there might be something that we could add to the media uh, coverage that was already playing out. There were many, many, many editorial conversations about how we should do that. Yeah, right at the start of the doco, you say that you've taken advice about how to cover this topic without doing harm. So can you say where that advice came from and what it said? So we took advice from groups who have been following the far right in New Zealand, and they directed us to many journalistic resources about how to cover this issue without replatforming these dangerous ideas. The main resource was a report called uh, The Oxygen of Amplification, which came out uh, in 2017 in the States, uh, written by Data and Society. It's an incredible resource for journalists. And we drew most of our most of our guidelines about how we should do this from that report. And it was really useful uh, to give us a structure, really, and a almost a checklist for going through what we wanted to cover in the documentary and uh, what we should and shouldn't do, and also to insert things that we were advised would be useful to counter the hate that we were reporting. The main decision that you made that I think has been the most controversial was that you didn't interview a lot of the people at the centre or any of the people at the centre of this documentary, Mm. really. So you didn't interview Calvin Alp, Amy Benjamin, Voices for Freedom, Damien Dement, these people... They've obviously seized on that, uh, said that you're scared to platform them or that it was unfair. Why did you make that decision? Because they've had their say. They have so many hundreds, thousands probably of hours of 
material on the internet already. And also part of the advice that we took, the guidelines that we were reading, uh, said that it's dangerous to give them a platform that's equal to the hate that they're already disseminating. And so this is not your ordinary right of reply situation. In a way, it's like we were giving our audience the right of reply to what had already been said. It's interesting, though, because it is a change of approach for you when it comes to conspiracists. You covered Billy Takahika and you sat down with him. I mean, with Billy Takahika, we did sit down and we did an interview, but we didn't let him platform any of his conspiracy theory views. That was an important distinction. We were challenging him on things that he had said and things that he had done and misrepresented in his career. In this instance, we, we, we just didn't want to give them an opportunity to revoice the conspiracies that they already have voiced. And so sitting down and giving them an interview and the, and the opportunity for a right of reply risked platforming their dangerous speech. And we simply didn't think it was responsible to do that. Do you think that there's also this danger that maybe the media can be bamboozled by this, these people if they haven't really truly researched what they're saying in private and on the internet and on their telegram and that sort of stuff, where they can kind of sit down with a journalist like you and present a pretty reasonable front, I'm thinking particularly of Voices for Freedom, uh, and that can draw people into, I guess, increasingly radical ideas. They mostly don't engage with the media anyway. I mean, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if we had sent them an invitation for an interview. I suspect they probably would have declined. They usually do. But yes, they're sophisticated operators and media journalists need to be really on guard for precisely what it is that they're that is behind the messages that they're giving you, whether it's accurate, whether the people that they're fronting are, are credible and whether their views are dangerous and if they if journalists are deciding to give them an opportunity to speak then they need to be really careful about providing other information to give it context you keep saying that we're dangerous and i guess some people might be asking you know, what could they be saying that's so dangerous or what could they be doing that is so dangerous now can you just elaborate on why you believe that's so dangerous I mean, it's not just my opinion. We, you know, obviously we consulted with lots of experts in this field about the danger of the information that they're putting out. Uh, or the first thing that hits you right in the face is how violent some of it is. I mean, obviously, Voices for Freedom aren't going around speaking like Damien Dement does, who, you know, speaks about how politicians are going to get killed. But it's dangerous because the way that many of these groups and people have brought people into their conversations, which are happening in dangerous places like Telegram, and they've brought them in through the pandemic on the basis of kind of vaccine hesitancy or concern about mandates or concern about the pandemic response. And even within that conversation, the amount of disinformation is absolutely incredible. And it's interesting when you put out a piece of work like this, the response that you get is uh, huge from these followers, but they all send you exactly the same links to the same pieces of research, which, it, you know, it takes less than a minute to actually fact check that stuff and find out that it's, you know, disinformation, but they obviously don't do that. And so the the danger lies in the fact that People are brought in on the basis of concern about vaccine hesitancy and they're very quickly taken down a path to 
concerning stuff. I mean, we explained in the documentary how Alia Bland, for instance, from Voices for Freedom, was posting links to documentaries on her Facebook page, which were about the Capitol riots, which were in support of the insurrectionists. You know, it's not just vaccine hesitancy that we're talking about here. Some people talk about a truth sandwich, state the truth, play the lie, then state the truth again. The documentary doesn't really do that. It it actually plays a lot of their quotes verbatim, and it doesn't rebut them on the spot or anything like that. But there's still the central thesis that you can tell is running throughout the documentary that this stuff is dangerous and deceptive. Is that something that you considered? Yes, we absolutely did. I mean, there's been some excellent reporting in this field which has done exactly that, state what they're saying and then immediately rebut it. But the documentary would have been kind of 10 hours long if we'd done that. It seemed like a more efficient editorial process to let it speak for itself because the context of all of it together, we hoped that it was clear that it was wrong, that it was disinformation and that it was dangerous without having to fact check every single point that was made. Can I ask you to move on to do a little bit of my job for me, a little bit of media criticism? How do you think the media has handled these groups and covering these groups? Have there been instances where we have been deceived, where we have been tricked into essentially running their propaganda for them? I really think there's been some incredibly great work done by journalists across um, many organisations. David Fisher at The Herald, my colleague Charlie Mitchell at Staff, Mark Dulder at uh, newsroom, the spin-off has done incredible work in this area. There have been journalists chipping away, doing really solid investigative work exposing these groups. Where it has fallen down occasionally is where some of these groups have managed to get some mainstream media coverage um, and it exposes, I think, a vulnerability in newsrooms and it also exposes or should be educative about how sophisticated um, they are as manipulators in terms of trying to get their agenda out there. Yeah, you know, and the wider conversation, of course, is about social media and algorithms and how quickly that sucking down the rabbit hole can happen, the wide spectrum of people to whom it can happen. And if we could do a second part to the documentary, it would be about how to Can we talk about that? Because sometimes it feels pointless, right? You know, you can put out this documentary, but is the news media even able to put a dent in the power of social media? Yeah, it's such a a good question. It's a really important conversation for us to have. But what we did hope, and again, under guidance from the experts who talk about the power of inoculation, which is that if you can give people the context within which these messages are being spread, and perhaps give them some kind of idea about where they might have originated from and why, that power of inoculation might help them to not fall down the rabbit hole in the first place. I mean, we weren't really under any illusion that we would pull some of these people out, but maybe we might be able to prevent some people from falling into it. The difficulty, of course, as we learned when we interviewed protesters, is that they don't watch mainstream media or listen to or read mainstream media because they've been told not to. But if we're going to do that, How do we do it? What do journalists who are covering the space that might get a press release from Nurses for Freedom, what what should they be doing to make sure that they don't end up passing on misinformation or disinformation? 
talking to people who are uh, working in this field, Fact Aotearoa, for instance, has done incredible work on the Nurses for Freedom issue. You need to re- you need to be really sceptical. I mean, you know, my boss at at Stuff, Mark Stevens, says don't trust anyone, don't even trust your mother, right? You have to absolutely interrogate everything. And if you get a press statement from somebody like Nurses for Freedom, be absolutely alert to the message that they're trying to get through to a mainstream audience and be really, really sceptical about the information that is within it. So one media outlet, the platform has taken a very different approach to this. It's been quite happy to interview Chantal Baker, even people like Calvin Alp. What do you think of that approach? He tries to maintain that you know our journalism at Stuff Circuit is compromised because we're funded by New Zealand on Air through the Public Interest Journalism Fund, and that's a you know that's a message that that direct message is one that is spread by these conspiracists by these very groups that we've studied, and it you know it works to a degree because they actually do believe that you know we get scripted advice for what to put in our stories from the government. I mean. I don't think I need to tell your audience that that doesn't happen, <laughs> that the, that our editorial independence has remained intact and intact and always will. Um, but it's a message that's useful to somebody, I guess, who's trying to build an audience. I don't know whether interviews is the word, but I've seen some of the pieces that has, have been run on that platform uh, on Facebook, and they're getting a lot of engagement and people are saying things like these are the hard questions that journalists should be asking I mean it would be laughable if it weren't so dangerous and it's come with a lot of abuse that's now being directed your way obviously you know we knew that we'd get abused for this documentary but we didn't quite uh, anticipate that it would be at the scale that has arrived Um, I feel really sad that you know, the security training that we had as journalists before we'd go to places like Afghanistan was actually more useful in Wellington than it was in Afghanistan. It it does chill voices. This kind of criticism and abuse, it does chill voices. But that was the point of doing this story, to show that the incitement of violence is happening and it's something that we need to be aware of and we need to do whatever we can to address it. That was Paula Penfold, host of Fire and Fury, which is out now on the Stuff website and its on-demand TV service, Play Stuff. The question of whether to cover the extreme right and how to do it if they do has been a vexed one in the media as conspiracy movements have grown noisier and more influential in recent years. In a recent column for The Herald, Matthew Hooten warned of a, quote, monstrosity emerging on the right and concluded with this conundrum for the media. Is it best to ignore these extremist movements for fear of giving them a platform? Or is it more important than ever to bring to public attention the true nature of their agenda? Disinformation researcher Byron C. Clark has looked at that issue in a paper on the media's coverage of the Parliament occupation for the Pacific Journalism Review. He talked to me about fire and fury and where other attempts to cover the anti-vax extreme right have fallen down. Kia ora, Byron. Welcome to Media Watch. Kia ora. Big journalism news in your field. What did you think of fire and fury? I thought it was a, a really excellent documentary and I think it really gave some of the in-depth coverage to the emerging sort of extremist movement in this country that we've seen a little bit of coverage of, but nothing quite uh, quite this in-depth before before the documentary came out. 
They agonised over this question, and it's something that lots of people do ask themselves. Does it give it oxygen to give it this coverage? These groups that they were covering, people like Counterspin Media and Chantal Baker and, and so forth, they already have a platform. They're already reaching a lot of people. And they're doing that, you know, without very much of a, a pushback. I think rather than giving them more oxygen by covering them in, in news articles or in a documentary like this, um, it's providing some of that balance that's lacking from their own media channels um, because they are putting their views forward without any any questioning or criticism of them. And so it's really more of a restoring balance to some of these ideas rather than giving these ideas oxygen. Yeah, one choice that they made, they didn't interview some of the central figures in the documentary, Amy Benjamin, uh, Calvin Alp, some of the people from Voices for Freedom. Do you think that Mm. was the right choice? We already know what these people think and what they believe. They've put it out on their own channels and the the documentary used some clips from that. So there was no need to go and um, give them a further platform by by interviewing them. The platform, Sean Plunkett's platform, the platform, has obviously Mm -hmm. taken a different approach and it's hosted a lot of these people. They've framed it as giving them a right of reply to the documentary. Now, what do you think of that approach? Is there anything wrong with giving these people a right of reply and being able to speak like this? The whole idea behind uh, the platform seems to be that if a, if a group or an individual is, is de-platformed and not, not given a platform in the media, that they must be saying something is worth hearing and it's in the public interest to, he- to hear what they're saying. I don't think that's really, really correct. I don't think somebody like Sean Plunkett, who um, you know is a, somebody who I think of as a serious journalist, is providing a platform to people like Calvin Alp, who's calling for... Um, a coup to overthrow the government, even if he is giving them a little bit of pushback in the interviews. Yeah, does the calculus change, though? So we've got local elections coming up, and obviously Voices for Freedom and other groups have been pushing for their members to stand as candidates. Does the calculus change for the media in terms of platforming people when they become a political candidate like that? People who are running for local office should be interviewed by the media should be questioned. Um, One thing that any journalist covering the local elections needs to be conscious of is that the people endorsed by groups like Voices for Freedom, Voices for Freedom has said, don't put Voices for Freedom on your your candidate papers. Don't uh, run as a Voices for Freedom affiliated person, run as an independent. So the questions we need to be asking are, you know, are you getting support from Voices for Freedom? And journalists need to be aware as well that they may not necessarily get a honest answer to questions like that and may need to do a little more, um, more investigative journalism on some of these candidates, which I think we're already starting to see, which is good. One thing that Fire and Fury really, I guess, gets right is that it, it provides what these people are really saying when they're saying it to the people that agree with them in private, on Telegram, that kind of thing. And do you think that the media generally has been uh, good at that when it's covering uh, people that are in these conspiracy movements, anti-vax movements? Mm. I think over the past few months, the media has been been good at that. Um, as a result of what we saw at the protests in Wellington in, in February and March. I think prior to that, um, a lot of this movement had been had been a bit ignored, um, in part out of not wanting to give it oxygen, not wanting to 
provide a further platform. But I also think there was a idea that this was just something happening online. It's easy to forget that, you know, when something's happening on Telegram, those those names on Telegram, those are all attached to, you know, real people, even if they're using a fake name. And when we saw the protests in Wellington, it was all these people from these uh, Telegram networks, uh, these disinformation networks all spilling out into the streets, and then we couldn't really ignore it anymore. Yeah, because you wrote a paper for the Pacific Journalism Review on the coverage of the Wellington occupation, mm-hmm. the Parliament occupation. You did note that maybe the media had been bamboozled in a few instances. You say Red Stag CEO Marty Veri, for instance, he was asked, he was one of the people that funded the protest. He wasn't asked about his father's connection to the conspiracy theorist Calvin mm-hmm. Alp. You, you talked about the Wellington protest having been described as having a festival atmosphere so do you think that we uh, have accepted what's being sold to us on a surface level in some instances and not looked into the reality and the context behind it? If somebody was completely unaware of uh, counterspin media and uh, the wider disinformation ecosystem on Telegram, they could have wandered down to the protest and seen people dancing, people doing yoga and thought, oh, it's a, it's a festival atmosphere, it's a... You know, it's a populist protest. People are bringing their children, but that that darker element was already there from from the start. There were um, extremists involved in and in pushing for you now some of the sorts of comments we saw in Fire and Fury, uh, calling for executions and 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 uh, show trials of politicians and journalists and so on. That was all there right from the start. A lot of people didn't see that because it was not really being talked about and not really being reported on. Um, some of the conspiracy theorists running in local elections now, they're running on platforms like one of them here in Christchurch. Um, his campaign slogan is, I hear, I care. Um, but if you go and look what he's saying on Telegram, he's supporting you know, very, uh, very far-right figures who are talking about the Great Replacement and um, ideas like that. So if, a, if you're a reporter speaking to one of these people, you can get some quotes that may sound quite reasonable. And if you just print that and don't print what these people are also saying in their Telegram channels or when they appear on a show like Counterspin, you're not really telling the full story. Now, the central thesis of Fire and Fury is that this is a danger to democracy. And Matthew Hooten in The Herald, he's said something similar. He's raised the prospect of some of these disparate conspiracy and anti-vax groups banding together and potentially even getting to the 5% threshold in a close election, which could bring a whole range of scenarios into play. Now, is this plausible? I'm I'm sceptical that the different groups would be able to maintain an alliance long enough to get a party over the 5% threshold because there is a, a lot of infighting between these groups, even though they have a lot of politics in common and there's also a lot of big egos involved and certain people who I couldn't imagine wanting to you know play second fiddle to anyone else as as leader so if they start normalizing some of these beliefs and then more mainstream parties like ACT or National if they were to then start adopting some of these policies to attempt to grab that one or two percent of the vote that's that's a concern of mine and that's something we saw in 2018 with the campaign against the UN Migration Compact, which began with far-right groups in Europe, made its way here, was adopted by new conservatives who were outside of parliament, but then later was adopted by ACT and National until they reneged on that after the Christchurch shooting where the shooter had written, here's your migration compact on one of his weapons. That incident makes it maybe less likely to happen again, but it's something we need to be conscious of. 
We have an element of it right now, don't we, with Three Waters, where actually some of that Wellington occupation movement, they've latched onto that as a way of sort of mm. keeping their momentum. And there's just genuine objections to that that are quite realistic. But there's also this infusion of quite like a, a, a very vehement conspiracy element and a racist element mm. to the objections to that. So, I mean, is that an example of what you're talking about there? Where there's that, that could be an example of it, yeah. Yeah, definitely. And there's other issues as well. I'm, I'm already seeing in these conspiracy theory groups, as a lot of the mandates have ended and maybe we're moving more towards the end of the pandemic, but we're very much still in it now. There's a, almost a, a pivot from the, the vaccine issue to other issues. So they're talking more about um, things like the significant natural areas and um, even talking about um, climate change and managed retreat and then conspiracy theories about uh, UN Agenda 2030 and things like this. And we'll probably see a bit of this in the in the local elections. And some of that stuff, you know, could become more normalised and then could be could be latched onto by by more mainstream politicians who see see a potential audience and a potential number of votes in adopting some of these ideas. And even if they themselves don't spread the more conspiratorial stuff, they might be normalising some of this discussion and bringing bringing that disinformation, you know, out into the open a bit more. You're in some of these online spaces. How do people that are in some of these conspiracy movements respond to seeing fire and fury? Did they have an are we the baddies moment or did they just reject it out of hand? One of the first things that happened after the after the documentary went online was that Counterspin arranged for what they called an emergency broadcast where they brought together as many people who featured in the documentary as possible to come on the show for what turned out to be a a three-hour-long live stream. Um, I'd watched that live stream, and they didn't seem to have agreed on a consistent line beforehand because they'd say one minute that this documentary was itself misinformation and they were being defamed, um, and then the next minute they'd say, actually, the documentary is helping us and more people will follow us and, and agree with us because of this, because they put our our ideas out there. So... They've had a really mixed and confused response. Um, I think they are hoping that they can use this to bring more people into the into the fold with with their beliefs, but I think that's going to be difficult to do because it's it's put some of the more violent aspects of their beliefs right out there, and that's probably for a lot of people going to be the first thing they know about um, something like counterspin is that they're calling for the overthrow, the violent overthrow of the government. So I think it's going to make it a bit harder for them. Um, there's been a little bit of talk about um, pursuing like defamation cases and things. I, I don't expect that, that will that will amount to anything because, um, as the documentary showed, it was everything in their own words. It was just showing what they said. 